0: Hello and welcome to The Hills Online. If I haven't met you, my name is Taylor. I am one of the ministers. I serve on our teaching team. And I am excited for our time together today. We're in week two of a series called Champion. But before we get into that, I'm excited because I've got some great news to share. Earlier this month, we had our Renew weekend. And on Renew, every dollar that's given goes to partner organizations who are serving the poor and marginalized in our community and all around the world. We gave you an initial total that was over $700,000 in church. I've got an update for you. As of today, you have given $965,000 to renew. It's incredible. Just amazing what God is doing. And like, here's here's what's crazy. Here's, Here's what's wild to me is that, that is trending on par with historically what we would give in a year that wasn't 2020 and wasn't a dumpster fire with the pandemic. Like that's incredible that God is doing that through you in hard times. Man, it's amazing. Church, I just want to say we love you. We are so proud of you and you are helping to bless people who need it maybe even more than previous renew offerings. So thank you so much. Now, having said that, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter four as we're in part two of a series called Champion. If you're brand new, I'm so glad that you're with us. Last week, we, we established in this series that there's kind of two ways you can talk about a champion. A champion is someone who can compete against other opponents and defeat them all for the title, or a champion is someone who can fight on behalf of a group of people. What we said last week is, Jesus is both kinds of champion. He is the champion and he is our champion who fights for us. And last week we established that Jesus is a champion who can win in a battle against the devil. And he won against temptation in round one of this three round fight in Luke chapter four. But this week, man, if you're new, I know it can be awkward kind of starting in the middle of a series, but I want you to know. If you're exploring the truths of Christianity, if you are wondering and wanting to learn more about who Jesus is or what Christians believe about him, you picked a great message to join us on. I believe God has you right where he wants you to hear from him and from his word. So speaking of, let's open up to Luke chapter four. We're gonna begin and pick up right where we left off in verse 14. So Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. So to give you some context, we are at the very beginning, the debut of Jesus' teaching ministry. So he's traveling around the region and he's not starting in the big cities. He's out in a rural part of Israel, the region of Galilee, and he's going to these smaller synagogues teaching, but the people are amazed with what he's saying. They are, they're, it says they're, they're, everyone's glorifying him, like they can't believe how he's teaching. And so what we have here is a little bit of kind of a preaching tour. As he goes, as a traveling rabbi, a Jewish teacher, from synagogue to synagogue, and he's about to make a very important stop. So, in verse 16, it reads that, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. So Jesus comes to his hometown, and in this moment, I mean, you think about like when, when a band or, or a comedian or a public speaker goes on a tour, like the hometown show is always packed. The people come out and as words been traveling about Jesus now he shows up at home and we can imagine we can be sure the synagogue is packed that day on Sabbath like all these people they've shown up they're ready to hear they want to know they've heard these rumors about Jesus and so they're all there Jesus is given the opportunity the reason it says he stood up to read is because he's given the opportunity to stand before the congregation for a main part of of a, a synagogue service for the reading of the Hebrew Scriptures. And he stands for the reading of God's word. Later you're gonna see he sits because that's, that's how they would do the teaching is that they would sit for the teaching. I tried to convince our senior pastor that we should do that. He did not buy into it. So uh, I'm standing today. But he stands up to read and here in verse 17, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And now he reads from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And having read this, he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Okay, so what we have here at the debut of Jesus's ministry, like we need to break this down because as Jesus reads from Isaiah 61, we can be pretty sure he's handed the scroll of isaiah which either means it was a planned reading or he planned to read it he decided ahead of time it wasn't just the 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 planned liturgy for that service but instead that he had in mind and asked for that scroll now this is this is his hometown it's potentially the very scroll that he may have grown up going and reading and studying as a boy and now as a man standing before his hometown he unrolls, he finds exactly where it's written. Now that, that would be, you know, to, to some of us, if we could just find a verse in the Bible just like that, that would be impressive. But these scrolls, if you've ever seen them, they're long and, and there's no breaks, there's no, there's no markers for, for chapters or anything. You've got to know exactly what the text is, but Jesus knew the word because it was his word. Amen. And he goes exactly to what he wants to read and then he announces and, and basically he is telling us, you want to know what kind of champion I am? You wanna know who I'm for? You wanna know what I'm about? Let me read this to you. It becomes kind of his prophetic mission statement. And he reads. And so what do we see here? Now, what we see is that Jesus says he is a champion for the desperate. When, when you think about what's in this passage and we have all of these things that these are people in some form of desperate circumstance, people who are desperate for good news, desperate for liberty, desperate for sight, desperate for freedom, and Jesus is a champion for them. A champion for the desperate. That's what he begins to explain about who he is and who he is fighting for. Now I think about this and, I, and you, you know, we may wanna ask, okay, so why? Like of all the things that Jesus could say, of all the things he could focus on, why would he say that he is a champion for the desperate? Why would he pick this passage? Well, the first thing is this is a passage that was often understood to be about the Messiah. The Messiah is a word that means God's anointed. It was this this promised redeemer for the people of Israel and the Hebrews had been waiting for generations, for hundreds of years, hoping for a Messiah and Jesus picks this passage to go, I'm him, look no further. But on top of that, I think that Jesus picks this passage because it is consistent with God's heart throughout all of the scriptures. God is always looking to, caring for, seeking out those in desperate places, finding those who are lost, healing those who are sick, providing for those who have nothing. This is consistent with God in the Old Testament. It's consistent with Jesus's ministry. If you follow the rest of the gospels, you see him doing this time and again. The desperate are welcome in his presence over and over again. When the crowd doesn't want to listen to some lepers who are calling out, Jesus says, "No, bring them over," and he heals them. When a woman who's been who's been dealing with a, a, an illness and an issue of blood for twelve years doesn't want to be seen by the crowd but wants to secretly be healed by touching Jesus's cloak, Jesus realizes and seeks her out and acknowledges her in her desperation and heals her. In Jesus's presence, there are there are. Desperate parents with sick or dying or even dead children and yet they when Jesus comes they find hope and new life and healing. Jesus is a champion for the desperate. This is who he is but it's also it's also this beautiful picture of what Jesus does for us. Mm-hmm. You realize we can look at this and say spiritually Jesus came because we're the poor in desperate need of good news. Jesus came because We're the captives, captive to sin and evil and the schemes of Satan, and Jesus comes to set us free. We are the ones who are spiritually blind, who don't understand really what's right, what's wrong, or even we don't even understand who God is, and Jesus comes to open our eyes and show us who he is. But it's not just a spiritual metaphor. It's also something Jesus consistently does. As, as, one, as one pastor, uh, Brian Loritz, says, Jesus cares about both the social and the soul. That's why for the rest of his ministry, you see him caring for these people who really need real physical help, but who also needs real spiritual help. Jesus doesn't create the either or mentality, but instead he cares for both. That's part of why, as a church, we have to recognize if we're gonna follow Jesus, if he is our champion, part of what we have to recognize is we can't just say, well, we're just, we're just gonna think about the, the spiritual needs of people. No, we also care about those who are hungry. We also care about those who are lonely. We also care about those who are in bondage to addiction or oppression or racial injustice. We care about these things because Jesus cared about the desperate. It is consistent with his character and therefore it must be consistent in his church. It's part of why I'm so proud of the way that you church gave generously to Renew because it's reaching out to desperate people in desperate places. Now money is not the only way we're supposed to live this out but it is one of the ways through generosity. Now the other reason I think Jesus comes for the desperate is because God knows that the desperate are deeply aware that they need a savior. They have no room for pride because they knew they wouldn't be free or seeing or hopeful without God. And reading a passage here about liberty to the captives or those who are oppressed, I can't help but think about a quote. It's it's very famous and maybe, maybe you've heard it before. It's from a Dutch Christian named Corrie Ten Boom. She and her family during the Nazi regime helped and tried to help Jews escaping Nazi oppression. And they were found out when Nazis raided their house as aiding and abetting Jewish refugees. And so Corrie ten Boom and her family were sent to a concentration camp. And her faith was some of what got her through all of that. And she amazingly survived, went on to become a famous voice for forgiveness and hope and persevering faith and here's what she famously wrote you can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have Now, what a thought and so for the desperate when they don't have anything else when Jesus comes into the lives of those who are desperate spiritually desperate physically Desperate, emotionally, in those places they know, without God, I'd be done for. Without God, I'd be lost. And so when God goes to the desperate, here's part of why. Because when he does and when he saves, God gets all the glory. Man, this is who our champion is. But before we move on and and continue to read, I want to point out something else. Because Jesus comes and and he comes and he basically is saying I'm the Messiah but he does not disconnect himself from the message in fact did you notice Here, here's, here's something that's just awesome about Jesus Jesus is such a great teacher and preacher that he only needs one sentence to make his point <laughs> he's got a one-line mic drop that's his whole message now, I know some of you are watching and you wish that I could preach a little more like Jesus and that, uh, you know, I'll, I'll try and be more Christ-like, see if I can shorten this up a little bit this week. But, um, but here's the deal. The reason that Jesus can do that is because essentially when, when, he, when he says this one sentence, he is basically saying, this prophecy from hundreds of years ago is coming true right now through me. I consider that, and it makes me think about some people in my life who are friends and loved ones who do not believe in Jesus. Mm-hmm. Now, some of them have never believed. Some of them are uh, people who've, who have had a faith and then have walked away from it. But there's a theme that I hear in conversations when I talk with some of these people in my life, that when we talk about Jesus, when we talk about faith, there's a tendency for, for those folks who, um, who they'll say things like, you know, I like some of the things that Jesus taught. I just can't, I just can't buy into to him being God in the flesh. You know, I, I like some of the teachings of Christianity, but there's, there's a whole lot of it that I, I just, I, I can't, I can't buy into. Essentially, they take this pragmatic approach to say, you know, when it comes to Christianity, why don't we just kind of, you know, eat the fish, leave the bones? It's incredibly common in our post-Christian secular culture. That basically, when you, if you were to read this to somebody who's not a Christian, of good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, freedom for those who are oppressed, all these things would be like, wow, that sounds, yeah, okay, I love that idea. But here's the challenge. Secular culture, post-Christian secular culture basically says, we love the human dignity teachings of Christianity, but not the divine authority teachings of Christianity. We love the, the call to love others, but not the call to repent of sins. Or as one Christian author, Mark Sayers, kind of summing this up, basically said, there, the post-Christian world looks at the Christian faith and says, we want the kingdom without the king. Wow. And in Luke 4, Jesus says, unequivocally, if you want the message, you're gonna need the Messiah. You cannot divorce the two. And yet out in the world, there's more and more people who are trying to mine some of the best thinking and theology and ethics of the Christian faith and tradition and yet leave behind Christ himself. So if you're one of those people where you're still working through what you believe about Jesus, number one, I'm so glad that you're listening. But number two, I just ask you to reckon with and consider, Jesus himself said, Look, you can't separate these two things. I am the fulfillment of what you want. What that means for us as Christians is we believe that eternal justice, eternal hope, eternal healing, eternal freedom will never happen apart from Jesus Christ. I mean, in in our human world, we can make a, a flawed temporary version of it. But if we want the real thing, it's going to come from Jesus and him alone. So Jesus says all this, launching his ministry in his hometown. And think about this. He says this in front of people who babysat him. He says this in front of people who played with him at recess. He says this with some people who may have, just a few years ago, hired him out for some carpentry jobs. So how is the hometown going to respond to this claim that jesus makes verse 22 let's read on and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth and they said is not this joseph's son and he said to them doubtless you will quote to me this proverb physician heal yourself what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Okay, so initially, they like what they hear. I mean, they're, they're bought in. Okay, because they've heard all these things about Jesus, but, but Jesus knows why they like it. Because it sounds good to them, but they want to see it. And Jesus says, using this, a common proverb of the day, physician, heal yourself it's, it's as if Jesus is going, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, all right, hometown rabbi, if, if you've been traveling around and doing this stuff for these other towns and other synagogues where nobody knows you and, and you're just some visitor, it's about time we saw it too. This crowd, this hometown crowd, basically, they, they like the idea of Jesus bringing these things to their hometown. But the problem is they don't just like it. They feel entitled to it. And they want Jesus to do what Jesus gets asked in other parts of his ministry to do. Basically, to audition for them. Can you show us? Can you prove it? Because you've said it. You've you've laid the picture for us, but but we want to see the real thing. And what we have to understand is when it comes to Jesus, he's not auditioning for anyone. He does not need to prove or validate himself to any person, because he is perfectly aligned with the Father's will. Here's the deal. Jesus came for people who know they need a Savior, not for people who feel entitled to one. And so the text, like already, you should feel a little bit of this tension, because Jesus starts telling them what they're thinking in a way that's a little this is a little cringy. It's a little bit like, okay, things are getting awkward in this synagogue. But it's about to go from cringy to crazy. I'm going to read verses 24 to 30. We're going to kind of finish out this section and um, you'll see. You'll see what I mean. Jesus keeps talking. He's he's got the teaching spot, so he's going to take advantage. Now that he's read their minds, he knows they feel entitled to see him basically audition for them as Messiah to perform these miracles, to do these things. Well, Jesus says... Well, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. He goes on to explain, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Okay, what he has just done is he's referenced two Old Testament stories that I would venture to guess did not get a lot of play in the teaching at this synagogue. (laughs) There are about two different people. One of them is a, a poor widow in a desperate place. One of them is a rich and powerful army commander who's a man. They, In many ways, societally, wouldn't be more different except they have one thing in common, and they're Gentiles. Jesus brings up these people who receive some of God's favor, some of God's healing, some of God's good news, and look how... The congregation in Nazareth responds. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. What in the world just happened? Like with without some cultural translation, it's going to be really difficult for us to understand why did this go so bad? Like why did this just blow up and we have a mob trying to kill Jesus? Like what's going on? Well, as I said, Jesus brings up these two stories about two of the most famous and respected prophets in the Old Testament. In fact, it was sometimes said that that basically like like for for the Messiah, they, they, they were going to be an heir to Elijah. An heir to, to Elisha, these two famous prophets. Like, like, this was the idea. And so, Jesus brings up these two prophets who don't do things for people that they think are part of the in crowd. Instead, they do this for two people who are non-Jews. Gentiles. Part of the out crowd. And as far as the congregation in Nazareth was concerned, those two people, those kind of people, they did not belong inside the bounds of God's favor. And so they are furious. For the same kind of reason that the religious leaders will be furious throughout the rest of Jesus's ministry. Jesus loved people like they belonged even when society said they didn't. That's right. yeah, that's right. And Jesus didn't hide that he loved those people, right. that he cared about those people, that he sought out and served those people. The problem for the congregation in Nazareth is that they, they were operating from an us versus them mentality. And they are triggered when Jesus even hints that his grace and favor might include people in the them category. True. The Nazareth congregation is, they feel entitled to God's favor and they are offended by God's grace. And for Jesus, if, if that's where you are before Jesus, Jesus basically says, look, I love you. I don't have time for that. Us versus them thinking, man, I would love to be able to say, ah, oh, times have changed. That was just, you know, that was centuries ago and human nature has evolved and improved and we're not like that at all. And yet here we are. See, part of post-Christian secular culture has this, this myth of social progress that we're just getting better and better and better and yet... One of the counter narratives inside the Christian teaching is that sin is perpetual. And without Jesus, without grace, without the Holy Spirit transforming hearts, those kind of sins and that us versus them thinking will creep in again and again and again. Church, I love you. And I want to call all of us to realize that our Savior refuses to play by the world's game of putting his children in competing camps. Jesus isn't going to have that in his family. He's not going to have that in his church. Jesus will not allow the false dichotomies of the world to rule the thinking and choices of his people. So who is your them? it'd be easy to to angle this and make it one-sided and yet i want to make sure all of our toes are equally stepped upon because that's what jesus did so w- one of the hard things is that here you've got this this in crowd and this religious crowd and at the same time these jews are also an oppressed people they are under the thumb of the roman empire mistreated day in and day out by gentile centurions No matter how you look at this, Jesus calls every single one of us to reckon with us versus them thinking and to realize God's favor will not be boxed in by our comfort zones. His love is not bound by our social standards or political persuasions. He transcends the us versus them mentalities that plague our headlines and comment sections so who's your them who is that group who is that that person that the thought of them at god's table is offensive to you that that, that bothers you the idea of god Welcoming them in. Just like he's welcomed you. Those are the people that Jesus wants us to understand. His grace, his favor, his love, his salvation. It's on offer to them too. And it has, at his table, he's got a spot labeled them. And guess what? In the scheme of this faith, every single person, part of our church, who is a Gentile, we were them. And Jesus came to save us. Do you realize Jesus Jesus here stands up for those who are not present and do not have a voice in this room? And Jesus says, I care about them too. I love them. And so in response, what, what do we get? We get a first century version of cancel culture from the Nazareth congregation. You say the wrong thing, you fail to meet our expectations and you are done for. By the way, first century cancel culture is more of a kill you culture. <laughs> They're gonna drag him out to the cliff. They, want, they, wanna, they wanna be done with him. And somehow Jesus escapes to go about the rest of his ministry. Luke doesn't say how. I like to think it was a miracle. I don't know. But he heads right onto the next town. Interestingly, as we'll read next week, he heads right to the next synagogue. He doesn't have an experience with one one group of people who represent a larger whole and say, well, because of that, I'm done with that whole group. No, Jesus faithfully keeps going to the synagogues to preach. His followers in the book of Acts will do the same thing, and they will go to the synagogues and they will preach. And like Jesus, they will also experience rejection. But what does that that tell us about Jesus as a champion? It tells me that human rejection can't stop divine redemption. It doesn't matter what people say, human rejection is not going to stop divine redemption. God's plan will overrule and overcome people's opinions. Because Jesus came to win souls, not public favor. Jesus came for the lost, not for the loudest he would face many rejections after this. They'd be from one-on-one encounters. They'd be with religious leaders. They would even be with huge crowds, like in John 6, where Jesus says a few things they don't like, and the vast majority of thousands of them walk out. And eventually, eventually another mob in the city of Jerusalem would come for Jesus. And that time would be different. See, in Nazareth, they took him from the synagogue service, but in Jerusalem, they will take him from a Roman trial. In Nazareth, they failed to throw him off a cliff, but in Jerusalem, they succeed in nailing him to a cross. In Nazareth, Jesus escaped so he could stay on mission, and in Jerusalem, Jesus stays because dying was his mission. Jesus' sacrificial death, paying for the sins of the world, paying for all the desperate places that I, just ha- I haven't just been put in, but I have put myself in, right. rebelling against God, in desperate need of a savior for my own sin, for my own brokenness. Jesus turns that into the pinnacle of his earthly rejection, where religious leaders and Gentile soldiers and a crowd And even some people he died next to mock him and reject him. Look, this is right here in the Gospel of Luke. Chapters later in chapter 23, on the cross, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, he's talking about Jesus, this man has done nothing wrong. And then the criminal turns to Jesus and said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. (laughs) Even at the cross, Human rejection could not stop divine redemption. Even as he dies, Jesus was a champion for one more desperate soul. Man, don't don't you see? So much of what Jesus came to do that he reads in Isaiah 61 was through taking the place of the people he would rescue. He was willing to become a captive to set the captives free to face oppression, to win freedom for the oppressed. He became the desperate and destitute so that we could become the redeemed. Jesus, he takes the place of the outsider on the cross so that through faith in him, we can be welcomed into the family of God's freedom and favor and hope. So the best thing that we can do is realize our desperate need for God's healing. We need his freedom. We need his forgiveness. We need his rescue, no matter who you are. And we all need it. And a desperate heart will not be disappointed in a Savior like Jesus. He came for you, for the desperate, for those who knew they needed that help. And the other thing that we can do in response to this is to repent for any part of our hearts that has made boundaries for how far God's forgiveness is allowed to reach. God, forgive us. We repent of us versus them thinking. His favor is not going to be boxed in by my comfort zones or by the lines that I draw. Jesus breaks every barrier as the champion for the desperate and for the marginalized. And if we better understand that that includes us, we will not only thank him, but we will see everyone around us with new eyes. No longer blind in entitlement or pride, but eyes wide open, full of love and grace and hope. Let's pray together. Lord, would you help us to receive the Savior, not as we want to confine him, but as he truly is. Lord, would you help me, help me to repent of the the us versus them thinking, of pitting myself against others when in fact, Lord, you invite us all to the table. We are all sinners in need of grace. Help us, God, heal our land, transform our hearts. Help us to receive it and to trust you again. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.